Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscamol, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, here in studio with Mike the Sound Guy, and we are broadcasting to you from the heart of downtown Durham, North Carolina. And folks, I got to tell you, I'm going to be talking a little bit faster than I normally do because I am holding in my hands one, two, six, eight, 13, 14, 14 pages of mess from the past uh, week and a half. So we've got a lot to go over. And then at the end of the podcast, we're going to talk about anonymous speech on Twitter and when the government tries to subpoena your identity for that uh, based on one of the stories that we're going to cover. So that will be the Law 140. We'll talk about the law as it relates to anonymous speech. Now, of course, a couple podcast notes before we get into the business for this episode. Uh, We did have a special bonus episode on the Patreon page for our patrons covering the uh, the big political news last week, which was the indictment of Paul Manafort and George Papadopoulos, the former campaign manager uh, and foreign policy advisor of the Trump campaign, respectively. Apparently, there's also going to be an indictment coming up this week, or at least fairly soon, uh, for former national security advisor Michael Flynn, uh, a Flynn indictment, if you will. We'll uh, we'll see how that turns out. Looking forward to that happening. So anyhow, there's a special bonus episode for the patrons. If you've not seen it yet, go check it out. It is patreon.com slash Fisk. That is slash F-S-C-K. Also make sure to follow us on Twitter. We are at Fiskamall. That is F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. And if you'd like to leave a comment on any of the episodes, you can do so at our website, Fiskamall.com. That is F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. And last but not least, if you like what you're hearing, make sure to leave us a review or give us a five-star rating on the iTunes store. I think it's also now called Apple Podcasts. All right, so we're, we're going to gloss over politics for the most part. Thank God the papaya potus Donald Trump is uh, overseas for the next week and a half. Uh, he's still managing to embarrass us, of course, uh, in a meeting with the Japanese prime minister. This is a direct quote from the Japan Times. Uh, says, quote, the U.S. president said he could not understand why a country of samurai warriors did not shoot down the missiles being fired by North Korea. I think he's been watching a little too much anime. I'm not sure Trump knows how samurai warriors work. Um, But I want to talk briefly on politics, what's going on while he's not here. Uh, Because the House Republicans have put together a draft budget And as part of that, they're proposing to eliminate the adoption tax credit. Now, this is a credit that is up to a maximum of $13,460 per child. That gets deducted off of your income, which you pay taxes on. Uh, Plus, if you have employer-provided benefits, so like if they give you like paid leave to be with your kid, uh, that type of stuff would now be taxed, whereas before it was tax-exempt. Now, I had to take a tax class in law school. It was required for us. I will tell you now, the tax code is a mess. I have a book of it in my bookshelf in my law office from that class I had to take. Uh, I joke with the professor, who is actually a friend, thank God. Um, But at the time, this was the only class in all of my three years of law school where I legitimately broke down in tears. I was sitting at my dining room table working on the final exam, and I just cried because it's such an inscrutable mess that is so damn hard to understand. But as messy as it is, and as necessary as it is for things to be cleaned up, 
there's also other places to fix first. And this elimination of the adoption tax credit kind of shows a pattern of conduct that's been happening recently when it comes to the Trump administration and the congressional Republicans. You know, because just this past week, we'll talk about it a bit later on, the Department of Justice has been fighting a uh, undocumented teen girl who was trying to get an abortion. They're essentially saying even though abortion normally is legal, in her case, they're not going to allow it because she is an undocumented minor. Uh, And then just last month, the uh, president rolled back the birth control mandate. So if you're getting health insurance through your employer, they're not required to include birth control as part of that coverage if you're a woman. But then just the month before that, they also cut funding for teen pregnancy prevention. So, you know, I I consider myself a pro-life guy. If it's something where I want fewer abortions, one of the ways to do that is to have fewer pregnancies. Or if you end up getting pregnant, but you still don't want to have the kid, at least enabling it so that it can be put up for adoption and people can actually adopt the child is another way of trying to minimize the number of abortions that take place. But both of those are being eliminated as possibilities by this administration. It's something where it's really, it's an anti-family policy. It's an anti-life policy and it's becoming a pattern and it's disturbing as hell. I mean, it's something where this is like deliberate failing to solve problems, you know, it's, it's malicious incompetence really everywhere. You know, if you look at, for example, North Carolina, I I did some digging, North Carolina has more kids in our foster system today than we've ever had before. 5,721 as of 2016, that's roughly a 3.3% per year growth rate over the past 10 years. Now, part of the reason for that growth has been substance abuse addiction, opioid addiction, people being found unfit as parents because they're hooked on drugs. So you've got a couple options. You can help fix that problem. And part of that is that these are drugs of despair. When people can't find jobs, can't build a life, they try to escape their problems. But Congress and the president aren't doing anything to fix the economy. Well, if you're not going to fix the drug addiction, make it easier for people to adopt these children who are stuck in foster care in a system that sucks, where they've got no stability, no chance to grow and be nurtured by parents who care about them. Make it easier for people to adopt. And instead, you're doing the opposite here. And if that's not going to work, at the very least, try to stop the growth into the foster care system by working on pregnancy prevention, but you're eliminating that too. It's like every possible outlet to fix a problem, this president and this Congress are going out of their way to fuck things up worse. It is malicious incompetence everywhere, and it's disturbing. It is fantastically disturbing. So, all right, that's it for the politics. Sorry to get on my soapbox. I just, ah, anyhow. All right, criminal justice news. So let's talk of the courts. I got four separate opinions I want to go over with y'all, two each from the Fifth Circuit and the Ninth Circuit. So out of the Fifth Circuit, the uh, police in Arlington, Texas, shot and killed John Lincoln back in 2013, and his daughter was standing right next to him when uh, they shot him dead. And this is an excerpt from the opinion. It says, quote, When Aaron fell to the ground beside John, her father, and cried out, Police officer Turner handcuffed her and threw her over his shoulder, carried her into the backyard, hung her roughly over the back gate, and then threw her onto her feet. Aaron was then put in the back of a police car in handcuffs. She did not fight, struggle, or resist. Uh, Ended up, she was in the police car for two hours in handcuffs. 
Uh, well, it turns out they ended up giving this officer qualified immunity anyway. He cannot be sued. Uh, the court says, quote, as we explained, Turner exceeded this authority when he handcuffed Aaron and detained her in the back of a police car for two hours. In doing so, Turner violated Aaron's constitutional rights, yet we are not persuaded that every reasonable official would have understood that what he is doing violates that right. Apparently, if every officer doesn't understand it, you automatically get qualified immunity. It's the dumbest fucking standard that we apply and we apply it everywhere. And bear in mind, again, qualified immunity is a judge created doctrine. It was woven from the ether by the courts. It is not something that was established by the statute or by the constitution. The courts just kind of came up with it willy nilly and people have been dying as a result of it. Police have been going completely uh, unpunished as a result of it ever since. Uh, so there is some good news out of the fifth circuit. So in Choctaw County, police arrested a Jessica Jouch or Jouch, however you pronounce her name on suspicion of selling opioids from an anonymous tipster. Absolutely no evidence at all. Just an anonymous tip that she was selling drugs. They arrested her and kept her in jail for 96 days because they claimed the courts were closed. So they couldn't get her in front of a judge to talk about whether or not she'd be able to get bond. Uh, the court says in the opinion, quote, 96 days after being taken into custody, Jouch's case moved forward. She received an appointed attorney, waived formal arraignment, had bail set, and had a trial date set. Six days later, on August 6th, she posted bail. Before the end of the month, the prosecutor reviewed the evidence against Jouch and promptly moved to dismiss the charge. On January 29th, 2013, the Circuit Court of Choctaw County entered the dismissal. It is undisputed that Josh was innocent all along, as she had claimed from behind bars. This is an outrageous case. And to highlight how outrageous it is, you can tell the court was pissed off. They went through the history of pretrial detention and your right to be brought in front of a judge to have your bond set. And when I say they went through the history, they went through the history all the way back to the year 1116 uh, from the, it's called the Assize of Clarendon that essentially says that if you were supposed to be brought in front of a judge who's not available, you find a judge from another jurisdiction so you can be brought in front of them. Uh, they also go through some stuff from England from the year 1618. Uh, they basically, they go deep on the history of pretrial detention. So, and then it continues they reference one of the prior cases that they've uh, ruled on that actually says the sheriffs and the police have to bring you in front of a judge to have your bond set. And they say, quote, tellingly, the sheriff's arguments related to qualified immunity do not even mention Jones, which is the case that they were talking about. In fact, at one point in this litigation, the sheriff conceded that the Choctaw County Sheriff's Office, Choctaw County District Attorney, or Circuit Court Judge clearly should have provided Plaintiff Josh with an appearance before the Circuit Court of Choctaw County within the 30 days provided for by state law. While he attempted to spread the blame to other officials, his actions and decisions are the cause of Josh's constitutional injury. Either Sheriff Halford is plainly incompetent, or he knowingly violated the law. Uh, good news is he was denied qualified immunity, as was the county. So that lawsuit will continue. Uh, out of the Ninth Circuit, so the Ninth Circuit has actually been pretty decent on this stuff lately. Um, the Orange Police Department shot and killed Connor Zion back in September of 2013. And keep in mind, if y'all paid attention to that case, the district attorney's office actually cleared the officers responsible for that fairly quickly, said that it was justified. 
Um, well, of course, this is all caught on dash cam and body camera footage. The Ninth Circuit actually reviewed the video and provided links in their judicial opinion uh, to the video so you could see it for yourself. Uh, but essentially, the, the kid had some kind of mental disorder and was having an episode. He had allegedly bit a relative or something to that effect, and that's why the police were called. Well, from a distance of about 15 feet away, uh, one of the officers fired nine shots, so half a magazine typically. Uh, and then you see Connor fall to the ground. The officer gets up to him about four feet away and fires nine more times. And then Connor rolls over into the fetal position because he's been shot repeatedly. So then the officer, for good measure, stomps on his head three times. Like it's a it's a disgusting, gruesome video of standard police practice in Orange, California, apparently. Um, so the court says, quote, by the time of the second volley, it's the second batch of nine shots, Higgins had shot at Zion nine times at relatively close range and Zion had dropped to the ground. In the video, Zion appears to have been wounded and is making no threatening gestures. While Higgins couldn't be sure that Zion wasn't bluffing or only temporarily subdued, Zion was laying on the ground. It was not in a position where he could easily harm anyone or flee. A reasonable jury could find that Zion was no longer an immediate threat and that Higgins should have held his fire unless and until Zion showed signs of danger or flight. Or a jury could find that the second round of bullets was justified, but not the head stomping goes on to reference the defendant's arguments that there is a case that says that they're supposed to keep shooting until they terminate the threat. The court says, quote, but terminating a threat doesn't necessarily mean terminating the suspect. If the suspect is on the ground and appears wounded, he may no longer pose a threat. A reasonable officer would reassess the situation rather than continue shooting. This is particularly true when the suspect wields a knife rather than a firearm. In our case, a jury could reasonably conclude that Higgins could have sufficiently protected himself and others after Zion fell by pointing his gun at Zion and pulling the trigger only if Zion attempted to flee or attack. They also got into the discussion of the body cam because guess what? You will be shocked to find that the police lied about what happened. Uh, they say, quote, Higgins testified that Zion was trying to get up, but we may not simply accept what may be a self-serving account by the police officer. This is especially so when there is contrary evidence. In the video, Zion shows no signs of getting up. This is a dispute of fact that must be resolved by a jury. So they denied qualified immunity for that, and that case will proceed as well. Uh, there's also an interesting First Amendment case, and by interesting, I mean bizarre. So there's a trademark dispute over what is or is not a comic con. So a comic conference is the, uh, the long title for it. So the Salt Lake comic con without a hyphen has been sued by the San Diego comic con with a hyphen as part of a trademark dispute. And as part of that lawsuit, uh, district court judge, Anthony Battaglia issued a gag order, basically saying that the defendants couldn't talk publicly about the lawsuit at all. They couldn't talk on social media. They couldn't reference the publicly available court documents. They're just a complete gag order that they can't talk about, even though part of their defense is that Comic-Con is a pretty generic-ass trademark to the point where it shouldn't even be trademarkable because they happen everywhere. We had one in Raleigh just a few months back. Um, well, that ended up, they appealed to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals to have that gag order lifted, and the Ninth Circuit agreed that it should be dissolved. 
saying, quote, because defendants actively participated in the public discussions over the internet on various websites and through social media platforms, including Twitter feeds and Facebook postings, the SDCC, that's the San Diego Comic-Con with the hyphen, uh, successfully moved for a sweeping set of suppression orders prohibiting petitioners from expressing their views on the pending litigation and from republishing public documents over social media platforms. Instead, the court ordered petitioners to prominently post on their social media outlets its order prohibiting comments about the litigation on social media, dubbing this posting a, quote, disclaimer, unquote. Petitioners assert that the court ordered prior restraints on their speech violate the First Amendment. We agree. So that's an awesome ruling. Glad to add it to the list of pro-First Amendment rulings from the Ninth Circuit. Uh, both of those Ninth Circuit decisions as well as the Fifth Circuit decisions, we will include all of those in the show notes. And for those of you that forgot to get to the show notes as you're listening to us on your uh, podcast app of choice, typically you can just like press your phone or iPad or wherever you're listening to and it will pop up there. Uh, there's a whole bunch of hyperlinks and you can just kind of scroll through them until you find it. All right. So in uh, general research news out of Gallup. So more Americans apparently feel safe walking alone outside. They found that only 30% of those surveyed did not feel safe walking by themselves a mile from their home. This is the lowest since 1965 when the question was first asked. And the reason why you will be surprised, uh, we mentioned this before, is that crime is down. If you're not going to get robbed, then guess what? You tend to feel safer. So this just kind of dovetails with the trend line of violent crime being down, property crime being down. Uh, the highest levels of feeling unsafe were throughout the 70s and 80s when we were in the middle of a crime wave. Uh, so that is out of Gallup. We'll give you that link. Out of NPR, new polling shows that 60% of blacks believe they have been profiled or treated unfairly by police because of their race. I'm actually shocked that it is that low. Uh, 45% say the same about how they were treated by the courts, and 31% say fear of discrimination makes them less likely to contact law enforcement. Again, I'm not at all surprised by the num these numbers. I'm actually surprised they're as low as they are, uh, because it's just, I would expect it, you know what I mean? Um, there are times where I don't call the police for folks because I'm afraid that something bad's going to happen. You know, if it's something where I can help them resolve it, I will, as opposed to having law enforcement get involved. So that doesn't surprise me in the slightest. Uh, out of ProPublica, turns out right-wing extremists have been uh, communicating in confidential online chats in recent months about how to blow things up, sharing scores of documents detailing the manufacture and use of bombs, grenades, mines, and other incendiary devices. That was a quote from the article. Uh, and the documents, which range from instructions on detonating dynamite to U.S. military manuals for constructing improvised explosives and booby traps, were passed around during online conversations among members of ANTICOM, which is short for Anti-Communist Action, a secretive and militant group that has emerged during the past year. Now, keep in mind, all of this is going on. You have Nazis in the streets shooting at people, running folks down with cars, etc., etc., and Attorney General Beauregard is concerned about black identity extremists. Fucking imbeciles. Covered in Slate, a new study from Loyola Law School confirms that prosecutors give white defendants better plea offers than black ones. Uh, from the story says, quote, a new study from Carlos Berdejo of Loyola Law School demonstrates for the first time that there are significant racial disparities in the plea deals white and black people receive on misdemeanor charges, with black people facing more severe punishments. 
Berdejo analyzed 30,807 misdemeanor cases in Wisconsin over a seven-year period and found that white people facing misdemeanor charges were more than 74% more likely than black people to have all charges carrying potential prison time dropped, dismissed, or reduced. And white people with no criminal history were substantially more likely to have charges reduced than black people who had no criminal history. Again, if this is something where you talk to a criminal defense attorney and they're surprised by that, get a new criminal defense attorney. We all see this every day. It's just nice to finally have it quantified. So that's in Slate. We'll give you that link. Uh, out of USA Today, there's an editorial by David Cooper, who is a uh, former Madison, Wisconsin police chief. He was there for 21 years. He's also an ex-Marine. And the title of the column, which will give away the content, uh, is, quote, body cams aren't going to make cops better, but college degrees and higher standards will. I'll let you read that column to read his thoughts for yourself. Uh, but for those of you that happened to support my campaign for the state Senate last year, you might recall a certain segment of my platform talking about the need to have better educated police with higher standards. And if you got to pay them more to get that, then do it. But that's what we need in addition to uh, the better technology. In the Washington Post, they talk about a new study by the Legal Aid Justice Center that shows 4.2 million people. Think about that number. 4.2 million people just in Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, Michigan, and Texas, just from those five states, lost their licenses because of unpaid court costs related to traffic tickets. So you have people that get a ticket for speeding or running a stop sign and the court costs are so fucking high that they then lose their license. They can't drive at all. And if you can't drive, it's tough to get a job to ever come up with the money to pay the costs. It's fucking insane. We're going to talk a little bit more about this as we get into the state by state news, because there is some slight positives in Michigan, at least uh, about that. But this, that's nuts. So check out that study. Uh, also in the Illinois Law Review, Law Professor Seth Stoughton looks into the police practice of moonlighting, where these guys are working part-time at private enterprises, but they're wearing their uniforms, carrying their guns, and all that other shit. So we'll give you that study. Check that out. Uh, in federal news, these military tribunals at Gitmo have had some uh, fireworks this past week. So the FBI essentially has been spying on the military lawyers who have been assigned to represent the detainees involved in the bombing of the USS Cole. So the way this stuff works with these tribunals is that the military has prosecutors and they have defense attorneys. You go on these different rotations and they assign you the people that you're going to represent and your job is to be their attorney. Well, the FBI has been spying on the defense folks trying to get information. Complete violation of how this stuff is supposed to work. So those attorneys, when they found out the FBI was spying on them, resigned. So we're not going to do this. This is insane. I can't provide a defense if I've got the federal government eavesdropping on what's going on. Well, the head of the tribunal, who is a colonel with the Air Force, he's Air Force Colonel Vance Spath, rejected the resignations. He says, I refuse to allow you to resign. Well, those attorneys superior, a brigadier general, who's higher than a colonel, by the way, uh, with the Marine Corps, Marine Brigadier General John Baker, uh, backed the lawyers and said they were allowed to resign. So Spath held him in contempt. And he said the general is confined to his barracks, uh, or his quarters rather, because he's an officer, he doesn't have barracks, uh, confined to his quarters for 21 days. And this is, this is so in insane because we'll get into the military tribunal piece in a minute, but the gist of it is the federal courts aren't going to intervene because it's a quasi-military thing. 
Uh, the Pentagon stepped in to say that after two days, Baker didn't have to serve the other 19 days, but they've not decided whether or not him being held in contempt for backing those lawyers, if that contempt conviction is still going to stand. It's just the most surreal thing in the world. So like, let's talk about military tribunals a little bit. So the military has had its own courts martial since the colonial times. It's something where if you're a soldier, you're subject to the Uniform Code of Military Justice, that's normal, and we expect that. Because if you're, you know, in theater in Afghanistan or Iraq or wherever else, and you cause some kind of mischief, you got to have a court system to address that. So that's what these courts martial are about. And then you got, of course, the civilian court system, where we have our rules of civil procedure and rules of criminal procedure and everything else. The benefit of both of those is that they have rules, and the rules are fairly well defined, and they have been refined over the course of hundreds of years, and we know how stuff is supposed to work. Well, these military tribunals are a mishmash of mess. They were created after the 9-11 attacks back in 2001. The procedure stuff is not terribly clear. Who's affected by it is not terribly clear. So U.S. citizens don't go to tribunals. We only have enemy combatants that go to them. But what's an enemy combatant? What kind of procedure are they entitled to get? Um, it's all a fucking disaster. And it's because of that disaster, the fact that people haven't thought through the procedure and the case law and how you deal with stuff like this, that you have this type of stuff happening where an Air Force colonel is holding a Marine general in contempt because the general is backing his subordinates who quit because the government is spying on them. It's just, it's so fucking bizarre. And the problem I have with military tribunals, aside from the general fuzziness of it all, is the fact that they're not useful. They're not actually accomplishing anything. If you think back since 2001, has there been a high-profile conviction of any terrorist at all? You know, I don't know. Uh, if any of you are keen military history people and you want to tweet me something about it, let me know. But I'm not aware of any high-profile conviction from a military tribunal. So it's like we've gone through this effort of creating this new hybrid monstrosity that accomplishes nothing, and you end up with bizarre shit like this. Uh, so let's talk about the Department of Justice. So there's a case pending regarding the 17-year-old that I had mentioned earlier, this undocumented uh, female seeking an abortion. Well, the government of Texas and then the U.S. Department of Justice have both gone out of their way to try and block her from getting that abortion, drug this out for months, and it's an abortion. So like, the longer you can drag it out, in their eyes, hopefully they reach a point where the girl couldn't get the abortion at all because the fetus would be viable. Well, back on October 24th, the Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit ruled that she was allowed to get an abortion. As part of her uh, constitutional rights, she could not be restrained from getting that if she wanted it. Well, the Department of Justice didn't immediately appeal. They assumed that because Texas law requires you to get advice from a doctor and then wait 24 hours, uh, that she wouldn't be able to get her abortion until October 26th at the earliest. Well, it turns out she'd already been advised by the doctor who ended up performing the abortion, so she had the abortion on October 25th, the day before the Department of Justice appealed. Well, the DOJ is pissed because, of course, they dropped the ball and they lost, so they've now filed an appeal with the Supreme Court, arguing that the Supreme Court should vacate the Court of Appeals decision, since the issue is now moot and it's going to be case law they don't like if it's not vacated, but then also asking that the lawyers for the girl be punished 
because I guess in their eyes, they think that they were supposed to inform them of what was going to happen. I don't know. So look, we have an adversarial system in the courts on purpose because the assumption is that's what you got to have to make sure each side is zealously represented. I'm not allowed to lie to a district attorney when we're talking about a case, but I've got no obligation to inform them of stuff ahead of time. I don't have to say, hey, my guy's going to go do X, Y, or Z. I just have to say if he's done X, Y, or Z, I can't tell them he hasn't done it. You know what I mean? So Attorney General Beauregard and his people are pissed, but it's because they fucked up because they're incompetent. Uh, Also, speaking of AG Beauregard, 70% or more, we don't actually know, it's at least 70% of the tables that get are uh, provided by the FBI as part of their uniform crime reporting. Uh, They've been taken offline. They've just been completely fucking eliminated. Uh, It includes, quote, information on arrests, the circumstances of homicides, such as the relationships between victims and perpetrators, the only national estimate of annual gang murders, and a bunch of other stuff. And when 538, which is the website that first noticed all this, uh, contacted the Department of Justice to figure out what was going on, DOJ said, oh, we're just streamlining things. And then 538 said, well, wait a minute, there's a group that you're supposed to consult with inside the government to determine whether or not this is going to be the case. Found out the DOJ didn't even do that. So they're not following the law. And in the process, they're deleting publicly available information. Now, I want you to think for a minute why they would do that. As you think about that question, bear in mind, you have an attorney general who is telling the public that crime is on the rise, even though all prior indicators are to the contrary, that crime is actually down. So marinate on that. Let me know your thoughts. Uh, Also, private prison company, the Geo Group, has decided they're going to move their annual shareholder meeting uh, to Trump National Doral Golf Club in Miami. I'm sure there's going to be absolutely nothing going on there. In state-by-state news, I got some sad news out of Alabama. In Vestavia Hills, police officer Bobby Hancock shot and killed himself uh, while he was in uniform and on duty in the parking lot behind his wife's barbershop. No particular explanation for why that will be under investigation. Uh, In California, out of Pomona, three Pomona police officers have been indicted federally. You're going to hear that phrase a lot, indicted federally, because there's been a lot of federal indictments here recently. Uh, Have been indicted federally for a savage beating of an unarmed teenager, Christian Aguilar, and then lying about it to cover it up. So this Corporal Chad Jensen, Officer Prince Hutchinson, and Sergeant Michael Niederbomer uh, have been charged. This involved a, uh, I guess it's the state fair. Police approached Aguilar's cousin, who was frustrated that one of the beer stands was closed. Aguilar is recording what's going on on his phone. So from the story, it says, quote, Corporal Jensen grabbed Aguilar and shoved him against a wall. A bystander's video posted online shows Jensen whipping Aguilar around and striking him twice in the face with his forearm as the boy kept both of his arms at his side. The blows sent Aguilar backpedaling. An officer identified as Hutchinson quickly grabbed the teen as another officer delivered a hard blow with his baton to the boy's knees. Hutchinson then tossed Aguilar to the ground. In his report of the incident, Jensen falsely claimed he struck Aguilar after the teen attempted to punch him in the face. And he wrote that Aguilar had come within, quote, an arm's length of the officers who were escorting the cousin. Hutchinson gave a similar account in his own report, falsely saying the boy had run to within a few feet of the other officers and then yelled at onlookers in an attempt to incite unrest as he was being led away. Niederbomer was assigned to the police department's internal affairs unit 
When Aguilar's mother attempted to file a complaint about the beating, Niederbomer tried to dissuade her by telling her that he had a video that showed her son trying to hit Jensen and that the boy would have to meet alone with the police officials if he wanted to make a complaint. So think about this. I mean, you've got two dirty cops who don't like being on video as they're trying to arrest somebody. They beat the shit out of an unarmed teenager. And then the guy who's in the internal affairs unit who's supposed to investigate allegations of misconduct then is involved in trying to lie to the mom, saying that they've got stuff on video that they don't have. This is disturbing. Uh, out of Colorado, in Centennial, Melicio, or Melicio Morales, I'm sorry, I'm completely butchering these names, uh, has been in the United States since 1998, when I graduated high school. He has raised four kids, including a daughter who is now a senior at Yale University. He has paid his taxes voluntarily. He does not have a criminal record. He was meeting with U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services about getting his green card so that he can become a lawful permanent resident. And our Department of Homeland Security, under the Trump administration and their infinite wisdom, has decided this is a guy they want to detain and prepare to deport. So he's been detained and he's now in Aurora, Colorado, waiting to be kicked out of the country. Uh, out of Denver, police apparently have forgotten about people they had in custody at least three times just in the past year. They talk about the story of Victoria Yogalde, and here's an extended quote from the story. It says, quote, policy requires desk officers to check on people detained in holding cells every 30 minutes and to notify a supervisor if someone has been held there for more than an hour. The holding cells are supposed to be temporary stops for arrestees before they can be transported to the city jail. Yet one woman, in custody for an unpaid traffic ticket, sat in a sparse police department holding cell for nearly 13 hours. Handcuffed to a bench, Victoria Ugalde could not reach the toilet for much of the time and had no option but to urinate on the floor. They forgot about me, Ugalde said. I was looking in the camera. I was saying, can anybody help me? And then nobody. The desk officer who was supposed to check on Ugalde admitted he failed to notice she was there because he was wrapped up in reading a book titled Emotional Intelligence 2.0. He served a three-day suspension and is back on the job. And then they detail that that's actually happened at least two other times just in this past year, and everyone is still on the fucking job. Malicious incompetence everywhere. Uh, out of Connecticut, in Stamford, off-duty New York Police Department officer Amanda Villafane was at the mall with her boyfriend, Christopher Salvador, and her mother. They went to a Godiva chocolate store after the store had closed, and the door was locked. While Villafane's knocking on the door, they let her in. She goes on a profanity-laced tirade against the store employees, threatens to beat them up. Uh, one of the people who worked there, her brother, was getting her so they could leave and is recording this on his cell phone. Uh, Salvador punches him in the face and, and leaves him with a bloody nose. Uh, and when police arrive, they say that they found chocolate and blood everywhere. So that is out of Connecticut, New York's finest, on a roll even outside of their state limits. Uh, down in Florida, got four stories out of Florida. In Boynton Beach, uh, Palm Beach County Sheriff's Deputy Jason Cook has been arrested, and you'll never guess why. Uh, so from the story, it says, quote, It had been just 90 minutes after paramedics took a dying 85-year-old man from his West Boynton home to the hospital. With no one home, in came an intruder of the unusual kind, a sheriff's deputy who knew exactly how to carry out a burglary. He had gotten the home garage code from the sheriff's dispatch log and used it to creep inside the residence. Unknown to him, 
turns out the home had a security system that was over the internet to the guy's son who lives in North Carolina. Essentially, he got it when his uh, his mother had passed away, installed the security system so he could keep an eye on his elderly dad, uh, and he didn't see his dad on the camera for a while. He's the one who called the police to have them check on his dad. So as the police show up to have the dad taken from the home, he's watching the live feed trying to see what's going on, and he ends up seeing this deputy come in ends up robbing the place. So that's how he got found out. Uh, out of Miami. Police arrested 30-year-old Bridget Friedis for being drunk and disorderly at a University of Miami football game. And as officers are carrying her up the stairs, she starts flailing her arms and ends up backhanding one of the officers, uh, who then slugs her in the face. Mugshots show that she ended up with a black eye. Uh, the Twitter comments are sad because you essentially have a bunch of folks saying, well, she got what she deserved because she hit the officer. You have a bunch of people of color who are accustomed to being shot dead for hitting an officer uh, saying that this is fine because she only got punched when it's not. She was drunk and she's flailing her arms and she hit the guy with the back of her hand. That's bad, but it's not something where you don't escalate to the point where you ball up a fist and punch someone in the face beating the shit out of them. You should not end up with a black eye because you drunk and backhand somebody. Uh, so that's out of Miami, out of Palm Beach County. Sergeant Roger Aaron Kirby has been acquitted of abusing his girlfriend's five-year-old son. From the story, says, quote, The boy, now nine, testified about a pattern of abuse he suffered at the hands of the man he knew as Aaron, saying that much of the abuse surrounded the fact that he still wet the bed. The boy said the abuse culminated with a violent reaction from Kirby one night after he wet the bed in April 2014. His description of the inescapable hold around his face and neck was consistent with restraint techniques Kirby learned in his work as part of the jail's version of a SWAT team used to subdue violent inmates. I tried to get out, but he was too strong. So that officer's been acquitted. He will be back on the force soon. You will be shocked, shocked to know that this is not the first time something like this has happened. Story continues saying, quote, this is Kirby's second brush with the law during his time as a law enforcement officer. In February 2012, he was arrested after he allegedly slammed his girlfriend against an aluminum bifold door during an argument. Kirby told deputies that he and his girlfriend had argued about his two-year-old daughter. The girlfriend, whose name was not released, said they had argued over Kirby's drug use. Court records show that prosecutors declined to seek charges against him in that case. The reason for it doesn't fucking matter. If he's slamming his girlfriend into a door, that's a problem. So he'll be back in the court system before too terribly long. Uh, out of South Palm Beach, police arrested 50-year-old Hugo Menchevier when he arrived to be a designated driver for a friend. A friend called him and said, hey, I can't drive, come pick me up. He did. Well, the police had already in the process of arresting the friend for, I'm assuming, being drunk in public, I don't know, uh, demanded that Hugo give them his ID, which he did. Uh, they also accepted his social security card because he's a citizen. They arrested him anyway, saying that there was an outstanding warrant in California. The problem is that the warrant was for Francisco Menchivar, had a different birth date, a different social security number, and if they had paid any attention, they would have noticed that the mugshot in the system didn't look anything like the guy they had arrested. Ended up, Hugo stayed in jail for six days without ever seeing a judge, and then was abruptly released without comment, and they gave him a bus pass to find his way home. Out of Georgia, we got two uh, updates on prior stories. So you might recall we mentioned two-year-old A.J. Burgess 
a kid who was born without kidneys, who was denied a kidney transplant because his father supposedly had violated his parole. Well, he's now been hospitalized and is on the verge of death. He's going to need surgery and dialysis. So again, going back to this whole anti-family, anti-life philosophy that seems to have taken hold of Republicans here lately, they're basically going to sacrifice a two-year-old kid, let him die because of stupid shit relating to the criminal justice system. Uh, also, out of Spalding County a couple weeks back, we mentioned the uh, 1983 killing of Timothy Coggins and how arrests were finally made in that case, and that three of the five people who were arrested actually work in law enforcement. Well, the district attorney has unveiled the motive for that particular killing. It turns out that Coggins was killed by these police officers for, quote, socializing with a white woman. So we'll give you both of those stories. In Illinois, we do have some good news. Let it never be said I don't share good news. Uh, out of Skokie, Vincent Gonzalez, who is 15, kept sneaking into a local gym after his membership had expired because he was an athlete, wanted to play basketball, uh, ended up, didn't have the money to renew. The gym told him, hey, if we catch you again, we're going to have to call the police. He came in again. They called the police. Well, Officer Mario Valenti showed up and ended up buying the kid a membership rather than taking him to jail. So kudos to Officer Valenti. Out of Kentucky, in Rowan County, a federal judge has affirmed that Kentucky taxpayers are going to have to pay $225,000 to the couples who sued County Clerk Kim Davis when she denied them marriage licenses a couple years ago now. It's going to have to be paid by the state government uh, because they gave Davis qualified immunity, and the county government that normally you would sue apparently has no influence over her particular office the way that Kentucky is set up. Her, her role as a magistrate is derived from the state constitution, therefore the state is going to have to pay for it. That's out of Kentucky. In Louisiana, lots of stuff from Louisiana. So first, Radley Belko, he's a regular columnist for the Washington Post. He has a column called The Watch. He's got a lengthy column on Hugo Holland, a district attorney who's been active in trying to stop efforts to reform Louisiana's criminal justice system. Now, Louisiana incarcerates more people per capita than anywhere else in the country. If, if Louisiana was its own country, it would be one of the top most incarcerated places anywhere on the globe. Uh, so they've been trying to fix that. Holland has been lobbying to stop them. Uh, it's interesting because he's not even a full-time DA. He had to resign his full-time DA-ship because he was caught falsifying federal forms. So he was lying to the federal government. Well, as soon as he resigned his full-time spot, he got hired by multiple parishes in Louisiana to be a part-time DA uh, for each of them, kind of like a contractor-type deal. And he became a lobbyist for the DA's association. Also, as a minor note, he keeps a portrait of Confederate general and Ku Klux Klan leader Nathan Forrest in his office. In Richland Parish, a white teenager has been arrested for burning down a black church. That is St. Paul Missionary Baptist Church is no more. Uh, we're going to talk a bit about these white teenagers doing these terroristy things again when we get to New Hampshire, so keep that in mind. Uh, also, the Louisiana Supreme Court has ruled that a man asked for a lawyer dog, one word, and therefore did not invoke his right to counsel. Yes, this is one of the most deliberately obtuse court opinions that I've read in a while. It's a concurrence in a 6-1 decision. Uh, Warren Demesme was being interrogated by police for some crime. I don't recall what it was. And he said this is his second or third time being interrogated. So he says, quote, If y'all, this is how I feel, if y'all think I did it, 
I know that I didn't do it, so why don't you just give me a lawyer, dog, because this is not what's up. Now, anyone who understands basic slang, going back to fucking decades ago, knows that dog, be it D-O-G or D-A-W-G, your choice, uh, is a reference to a person, not to the animal in this particular context. So it's give me a lawyer, comma, dog. It, that's obvious. I mean, you would understand that. Well, the judge, this is Judge Crichton in his concurrence, says, quote, in my view, the defendant's ambiguous and equivocal reference to a, quote, lawyer dog, unquote, does not constitute an invocation of counsel that warrants termination of the interview. If you're that fucking stupid, you do not deserve to be a Louisiana Supreme Court justice. You're a danger to the fucking public. Uh, so we'll give you the link to that story. Out of Baton Rouge, taxpayers will pay at least $136,000 for wrongful arrests of protesters relating to uh, Alton Sterling's execution some years back. So this is the story where the Baton Rouge police just started arresting every fucking buddy for blocking a highway, even though they weren't actually blocking a highway. So protesters will get reimbursed for if they did two days in jail they'll get five hundred dollars if they get three days they'll get 750 if they were in for four days or more they get a thousand plus all of them get their bail costs back plus all of those charges are going to be expunged plus they're going to have to pay the attorney's fees and that part hasn't even been figured out yet so baton rouge taxpayers have fun y'all gonna be paying a shitload of money because your police are incompetent out of michigan michigan house uh, has voted 103 to 5 to end what are called driver responsibility fees. The Senate had voted a couple weeks back unanimously to end them as well. So these essentially are fees that Michigan had put on people uh, where if you had points on your license, so like in North Carolina, when you get license points, if you accrue a certain number of points in a three-year time span, your license is suspended. Well, Michigan had this added thing where if you get points on your license, they assess an annual fee ranging from $100 to $2,000 per year in order for you to keep your license. So it's essentially a way where they're trying to help balance the budget uh, and they're using it on the backs of poor drivers. So they're going to go ahead and get rid of those. The pending dispute is how much of the accrued debt from prior fees they're going to go ahead and forgive because a lot of this stuff, when you don't pay it, your license is suspended. They could throw you in jail for it and everything else. The legislature, the Senate says we can only forgive part of it. The House says, fuck it, forgive it all. So they got to haggle over how much is going to be forgiven. But it looks like driver responsibility fees will be coming to an end in Michigan. Out of Mississippi, in Bolivar County, Deputy Walker Grant has been federally indicted for tampering with evidence. He ended up killing 20-year-old Willie Bingham Jr. back in 2013, and new evidence has unveiled that he planted a baton next to the body to make it look like Bingham was armed. So that is in Bolivar County, down in Gulfport, Kelvin Fairley, who's a registered nurse, and Natasha Krikorian, who is his wife, she is a psychologist with a PhD, as well as their three kids and a nephew, were all held at gunpoint by police following a traffic stop their crime, the neighbor had reported that they were trying to rob the home that they actually owned. So this is what we call the third rule of Fisk. There are no new stories, only new names and new jurisdictions. Those of you who were around early in President Obama's tenure may remember that Henry Louis Gates up in uh, New England was arrested for trying to break into his own home as well. Terrible crimes, breaking into your own home. Uh, out of Olive Branch, Mississippi, 
eight police officers have resigned in the wake of a wide-ranging sex scandal involving Olive Branch police and a lieutenant at the Olive Branch Fire Department. The sex scandal involves patrolmen and ranking officers, as well as three sergeants. Multiple sources told Fox 13, who's the folks that covered this, that eight people have resigned for having sex on the job instead of facing disciplinary actions, which might have included termination. These sources told Fox that the sexual encounters happened at the police station and even in their patrol cars. Over in Nevada, in Las Vegas, the Los Angeles Times and a consortium of other newspapers have all filed a lawsuit under the State Freedom of Information Act they've got over there, trying to get police records for that October 1st shooting at the Mandalay Bay Hotel. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, the requests sought police body camera footage, recordings of 911 calls, dispatch logs, evidence logs, and surveillance footage collected from the Mandalay Bay as evidence. The lawsuit argues that under Nevada law, all video and audio recordings made by police-worn body cameras are public records subject to inspection, as are recordings of 911 calls. In some cases, police denied requests to release the records, stating that the investigation was ongoing while ignoring other requests altogether. And the weird part about this is typically when you've got an ongoing investigation, you don't release this information because there are other people who could potentially be involved. But the police have already announced that this particular gunman acted by himself. So we're now more than a month later, this stuff's still not being released. Something's a little fishy over in Las Vegas. Uh, out of Reno, University of Nevada at Reno police officer Antonio Gutierrez uh, dressed up as a racist caricature of Colin Kaepernick. He got photographed. It's, one, it's a shitty costume, but then on top of it, it's like he's got one like one of those hook noses and terrible number seven. He's got a sign that says it will stand for food and a bunch of other shit. Um, it went viral, obviously, because that's the type of shit that goes viral. And the, uh, the police chief is super apologetic, says, quote, for those who have seen the Halloween costume of one of our officers apparently mocking a citizen who has chosen to take advantage of his constitutional right to protest, I offer my sincere apologies. So apparently that's all they're going to offer, though, uh, because he says, quote, members of our profession are held to a higher standard and denigrating another on or off duty is insensitive for its lack of respect and lack of understanding on how others may negatively view their actions and may be impacted. But Gutierrez is not going to be punished and will continue to serve on the police force. Out of New Hampshire, 18-year-old Brianna Brochu, who's a white girl from Harwinton, uh, confessed on Instagram to terrorizing her black roommate trying to get her to move out. Uh, Brochu licked her roommate's dining utensils, spit in her roommate's coconut oil, rubbed used tampons on her roommate's backpack, and stuck her roommate's toothbrush in Brochu's own ass. Like, this is just some nasty fucking shit. Just, ugh. So she's now being charged with a pair of misdemeanors. The police are arguing that she should be charged with a hate crime because she was targeting her roommate because she was black and didn't want to live with her. But in my mind, aside from the general fucked upness of it, like how diseased are you that you know that that's going to work? Like you licking so much utensils, you know, will make her sick because you're a diseased motherfucker. Like that's ugh. out of New Jersey. In Bordentown, former police chief Frank Nucera Jr. has been federally indicted. I think that's, what, the third federal indictment in this list of stories, and I've still got a few more states to go. Uh, has been indicted because he attacked a handcuffed suspect and terrorized black residents of his town. 
from the story says, quote, in the primary incident outlined in the complaint, Nucera allegedly grabbed an 18-year-old suspect by the head, slamming it into a metal door jam and hitting him in the head with his arm while apprehending the suspect and his girlfriend for allegedly not paying for their hotel room. In another instance, Nucera reportedly said that N-word are like ISIS. They have no value. Uh, the litany of Nucera's alleged abuses listed in the complaint include frequent use of racist slurs in reference to African Americans and the use of police dogs to intimidate black fans at a local high school basketball game and in an apartment complex where black people were present. Now, what is New Jersey paying for the privilege of being abused like this? Well, it turns out that when he was on active duty, uh, Nucera was making $151,418 per year plus benefits. When he found out he was being investigated, he promptly retired, where he is now getting a pension of $105,984 per year. Nice work if you can get it. Uh, out of New Mexico in Albuquerque, there's a very long expose in the Albuquerque Free Press and HuffPost. They've collaborated together on this about the Albuquerque PD how they are routinely violating people's rights. There's a federal consent decree to try and get them to shape up. They're totally ignoring that consent decree, and the Department of Justice under Attorney General Beauregard just doesn't particularly give a fuck. Out of New York, in Albany, police officer Craig Apple Jr. responded to a domestic violence call, and when he had trouble understanding the victim, he decided to shout at her, quote, you need to learn to speak English. Police Chief Bob Sears said in response, quote, From my understanding, the officer did not mean for anyone to hear it. He was frustrated with the situation, but unfortunately people overheard it. Hey, Bob, here's the thing. He obviously meant for someone to fucking hear it because otherwise he wouldn't have said it to them. You don't say in your head you should learn to speak English. You say this person should learn to speak English. The fact that he said you was him talking to the victim. Now, the fact other people overheard yeah, I'm sure that's embarrassing to you, but maybe you need to train your fucking officers that when we're responding to a domestic violence call, they don't shout at the fucking victim. They have services that you call where you can get an interpreter on the line in real time to talk to the victim. We use it all the time in courts. We use it all the time with police. But even if that doesn't work, guess what? There's this website. It's called Google Translate. You should try it sometime. Your officer is a piece of shit should be fired. Uh, out of New York City, the uh, NY police officers who raped that 18-year-old girl in the police van, they've been indicted. So we talked about them in two separate podcasts, one where this attack first happened, and then a week later talked about the fact they were trying to smear her reputation by saying she had a uh, sexy Instagram photo. Well, they've been indicted, so we'll see how that turns out. Also out of New York City, NYPD sex crimes investigator Nicholas McAteer uh, spent his career committing sex crimes. He's been indicted on 82 counts of molesting children with more to come. Uh, so that's something, kind of like those Law & Order SVU ripped from the headlines type episodes. We'll see if they make one out of that. Uh, out of Suffolk County, New York, elected District Attorney Thomas Spoda and a top deputy have now found themselves on the wrong side of the law, is the verbiage from this particular story, when they have been federally indicted because they covered up the brutal beating of a suspect by a former police chief. From the story, it says, quote, The beating victim, Christopher Loeb, made the mistake of breaking into the police chief's police-issued SUV and swiping the chief's sex toys, a porn video, a gun belt, cigars, and a humidor. The chief threatened him with a hot shot, which is slang for a lethal heroin overdose, 
The chief then went berserk when Loeb called him a pervert, thinking that the porno was child porn. He reportedly, the chief, he reportedly beat and kicked the petty thief so badly that an onlooking officer told him, boss, leave it alone. After the attack, Spoda, the DA, and McPartland, his deputy, uh, ran interference for Burke, pressuring witnesses from cooperating with federal investigators and lying about what happened. So that guy is now under federal indictment. In North Carolina, out of Goldsboro, the uh, House Majority Leader, John Bell IV, who's a Republican, uh, was recorded telling a meeting of other Republicans that they're going to lose the redistricting lawsuit. He says, quote, I feel like we're probably going to lose our case on redistricting. It doesn't look good. Well, rather than accept the fact that they're going to lose because the districts were shit, uh, he says, quote, when you talk about corruption, let me tell you something. Did you ever see the plaintiffs and the judges hanging out with each other, uh, apparently trying to impugn the integrity of the three-judge panel considering this case? Well, no, I haven't seen judges and plaintiffs hanging out, and I guarantee you he didn't either, because if he did, their attorney would have filed a motion asking the judges to recuse themselves and setting up the record on appeal. That hasn't happened. So instead, you've got another politician trying to uh, basically attack the reputation of a co-equal branch of government because it's not doing what he wants. Out of Wilson, 66-year-old Elton Wayne Walston has been sentenced to 27 years in federal prison for opioid distribution, including selling heroin to a man who later died of an overdose. There was a big press conference, lots of prison time. It's essentially a drug se uh, life sentence because this guy's so old. But you'll notice there's no real charges against the pharmaceutical companies who've been peddling this stuff and the doctors who've been overprescribing it when they're the main source of the epidemic. Out of Wake County, we talked about this clown show fuck before. So corrupt district attorney Wallace Bradsher, he used to be the DA up the street from me in person in Caswell Counties. Uh, he's the one who resigned when he was being investigated for corruption. Well, he's now been indicted federally for felony conspiracy, obtaining property by false pretenses, aiding and abetting, three counts of obstruction of justice, and misdemeanor failure to discharge the duties of his office. So this is the guy that hired his wife so that she could collect a paycheck without working. When he got told not to do that, he found a new DA who had just gotten elected and said, hey, you hire my wife, I'll hire yours. And they had these wives working without getting any pay. And then when a staff member reported it, he had the staff member fired. Well, the other DA in Rockingham County, this guy named Craig Blitzer, got a sweetheart plea deal not too long ago where he's only being charged with misdemeanors. And we were surprised. We were trying to figure out what the hell the deal was. He was getting such a phenomenal sentence. Well, I guess he's cooperated a lot because to get Bradshaw indicted on felonies is a big deal. So we'll see how that pans out. Out of Ashe County, North Carolina, uh, Sheriff Terry Buchanan has been suspended from office and indicted for obstruction of justice uh, because back in April, WBTV filed a public records request trying to figure out how this guy got appointed sheriff. So the county commission appointed him sheriff in January out of the blue. The media wanted to investigate. Uh, the station submitted a request for communication records, including emails and texts from the county commissioners and Buchanan in early April. Well, Buchanan responded essentially to go kick rocks. He, uh, he said to the county commissioners, quote, we don't have time for this. Everything we have is public document, but this takes away from all of our jobs, takes away from my job. Well, then the fact that it takes time doesn't mean you don't have to turn over public records. So three of the um, county employees 
tried to get access to Buchanan's government-issued phone to get the text messages to turn them over, well, Buchanan then decided to tell his deputies to have those county employees investigated. Uh, So he's being charged with obstructing justice by trying to have those folks looked into. Out of Oklahoma, in Marshall County, there's a lengthy expose from the Center for Investigative Reporting on how judges are sending people to this place called Christian Alcoholics and Addicts in Recovery in lieu of prison. You would think that's a type of rehab facility. In actuality, it's a chicken farm where people assign their processed chickens for fast food restaurants. They get paid zero dollars. They get threatened with prison if they work too slowly. And if something happens and they get injured, they go to prison anyway. It's disturbing as fuck. It's lengthy. I'll give you the link. You should definitely read it. Out of Oklahoma City, the 44-year-old father of six, Louis Moreno, contacted ICE about extending his work permit to be in the country. ICE officials told him they'd be happy to process his extension quickly. All he had to do was come to their office. They immediately deported him to Mexico. This guy's been in the country since 2002, working in a restaurant, no criminal record. This is the type of guy that the Trump administration wants to kick out of the country. And then in a statement, an ICE spokesperson, Carl Rusnock, told the media uh, that this particular guy was in a detention center, even though his family confirmed he's in Mexico because he called them from a bus stop. Out of Tulsa, Oklahoma, a lawsuit has been filed against every single sheriff in the entire state, plus the Sheriff's Association, plus a private collection company, uh, alleging that essentially, so when there are unpaid court costs and fines, what happens is the sheriffs then refer these accounts to Aberdeen Enterprises, which is a collection agency, and the Sheriff's Association, which is the administrator. So basically, the collection company gets the money, gives it to the Sheriff's Association. The Sheriff's Association divvies it up where it's supposed to go and, of course, takes a cut off the top. Well, as part of this, if you don't pay the money, they throw you in jail. It's essentially a a debtor's prison in a nutshell. So the courts are failing to conduct required hearings to determine whether someone is indigent. They're too broke to pay, uh, and they're not doing that. So essentially, you're going to jail for not paying it, And by referring it to a collection agency quickly, uh, the amount of the cost is increased by 30% so that Aberdeen can take a cut and the Sheriff's Association can take a cut. So that lawsuit is pending, arguing that's a violation of people's due process rights. Also in Tulsa, killer cop Betty Shelby. You might remember she is the one who executed unarmed black man Terrence Crutcher in the middle of a highway. A judge has ruled that that killing of Crutcher can be removed from her employment record now that she has been acquitted. That will be expunged, and she will be back on the force in no time to kill again. Uh, Out of Texas, legislators are considering changes to the state penal code that is currently written, lets rent-to-own companies pursue felony theft charges whenever someone defaults on a rental contract. Normally, you would just sue for breach of contract, but in Texas, they'll throw your ass in jail. Uh, Out of Corpus Christi, Customs and Border Patrol arrested a 10-year-old girl with cerebral palsy. Uh, They ended up, her name is Rosa Maria Hernandez. She was actually stopped on the way to the hospital to get treatment. And CPB, or CBP rather, stayed at the hospital so they could arrest her as she was leaving. Uh, She's now being detained by herself in a detention camp for juveniles, what are called unaccompanied minors, even though she's got parents who are in the country. So these are the types of people, these grave threats to national security, that your Trump Department of Homeland Security thinks needs to be deported. 
Uh, also, the U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Texas sent a subpoena to Twitter asking for all of the account information about Popat, Associates Mind, and three others over a smiley face emoji that someone else tweeted to them. So that's going to be the, the basis for our Law 140 when we talk about anonymous speech. They asked for the identity of Popat, who, guess what, his name is Ken White. It's publicly available online. Uh, Associates Mind is a guy named Keith Lee. Not only is it available online, it's on Twitter. He's got a blue check mark. He's one of those verified accounts. Apparently, if you work in the Sessions DOJ, you have a lot of free time on your hands. I don't know. Uh, out of Virginia, in Fairfax County, reporter Mike Stark was filming gubernatorial candidate Ed Gillespie's vehicle as he's going by in a parade, tries to ask Gillespie a question. The police told him to move back. One officer warned him to stop filming. Another told him to not cuss. Uh, well, Stark said, quote, fuck this and is promptly pushed into an iron fence by an officer who then drops him to the ground as the reporter is swarmed by six officers and handcuffed. And, of course, it's all caught on video because, first rule of Fisk, police will continue to do dumb shit even when they're being recorded. Here's the thing. You have a right to be on a public sidewalk. That's why the word public precedes the word sidewalk. You have the right to film whoever the fuck you want from that public sidewalk if they're doing stuff in public, like driving down the street. You also have the right to say, fuck this, in the presence of a cop. None of that stuff violates the law. So I'm sure there will be a lawsuit pending, and Fairfax taxpayers will be shelling out some money to Mr. Stark. Out of Wisconsin, speaking of shelling out money... In Milwaukee, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel has done an analysis of police misconduct settlements and found that Milwaukee taxpayers have paid at least $17.5 million in legal settlements just since 2015, forcing the city to borrow money to make the payouts amid an ever-tightening budget. That amount jumps to at least $21.4 million when interest paid on the borrowing and fees to outside attorneys are factored in. In some cases, the costs pile up as the city continues to fight the cases for months or years, even after officers have been fired or criminally convicted in the same misconduct case. The costs far outstrip the $1.2 million the city sets aside each year for settling all of the claims it faces. So the city sets aside $1.2 per year, so that's $2 million over a two-year time span, and they've shelled out $21 million, ten times as much, over that same period of time, and yet they still will not reform how we deal with policing. Uh, so that's it for the American states. I do have one item from abroad. So in the United Kingdom, the Independent Police Complaints Commission analyzed every death in custody since 2000. They identified roughly 1,563 people, which is astonishingly low. Like, we kill 1,000 folks a year here in uh, uh, the United States. Well, they looked at these 1,500 deaths, and they found, quote, every prosecution over a death in custody in the past 15 years has ended in acquittal. In fact, there has never been a successful prosecution for manslaughter in this context. So it goes to show that we inherited some things from Great Britain more than just our common law system. Apparently, we also inherited our killer police. So folks, that's going to cover the criminal justice news. Let's go ahead and dive into our Law 140 on anonymous speech and the government trying to get your information because someone tweeted a smiley face emoji at you.
right, so as we mentioned in the Texas part of our state-by-state news, a, an assistant United States attorney sent a subpoena to Twitter demanding the identities of several supposedly anonymous accounts. They included Popat, who is California attorney Ken White, an expert on First Amendment law as well as a criminal defense attorney, uh, as well as Associates Mind, who is Alabama attorney Keith Lee. I know both of those guys. Uh, there's also three others who I don't know, but at the very least, I can tell you, Keith and Ken aren't anonymous. Their stuff is all over their profiles and their websites. Um, so as we're talking about the law when it relates to the government trying to get your information, we usually say second rule of Fisk, start at the source, but you got to even go earlier than the source in this case uh, because you got to go back to before the Constitution. A lot of the publications relating to the adoption of the Constitution were done anonymously. So the Federalist Papers, which are tremendous for informing how the government is supposed to operate, they were all published under the pseudonym Publius. So that was James Madison, John Jay, and most of them were done by Alexander Hamilton. But they were all published under that same pseudonym. And a lot of the responses that were anti-Federalists, the anti-Constitution folks, were published under pseudonyms as well. Um, so you got to keep that in mind as we talk about the adoption of the Constitution and later the Bill of Rights. So when you start at the source, you got to look at both the First and the Fourth Amendment in this case. So the First Amendment says, quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. So that's the First Amendment. The Fourth Amendment says, quote, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. So this notion of having your identity subpoenaed because of things that you say, in this particular case, not even something they say, something that was said at them, uh, you've got both your First Amendment right to expression implicated and your Fourth Amendment right to be free of an unreasonable search and seizure implicated. So those are the two things we're looking at. So there's a, there's a lot of case law relating to this, different aspects of it. Uh, the first one that we would look at would be Talley versus California. So this is a Supreme Court case from 1960, and it related to a protester who was handing out uh, leaflets, essentially trying to urge boycotts of different merchants and businessmen uh, who are listed on the flyers saying that they basically didn't hire um, black folks, Hispanic folks, or Asian folks. And he was convicted of violating a city ordinance that said that you can't give out handbills unless your name is printed on the handbill and it's got your name and address. And he filed suit arguing that this violated his constitutional rights under the First Amendment, and the Supreme Court agreed. It's a very short decision. They don't offer a lot of explanation to it, but in a 6-3 to three ruling, they say that, yes, this particular statute violates the Constitution. You can't force someone to put their name and address on a leaflet when they're trying to organize a boycott. So then that decision is affirmed and applied to a different set of circumstances in McIntyre versus the Ohio Elections Commission. So in that case, this involves political stuff. So we've gone from a, a leaflet advocating an economic boycott to now something that is expressly political. This happened in 1995, 
And it was involved Margaret McIntyre, who was uh, charged back in 88, saying that she was distributing leaflets to people attending a public meeting in Ohio. And the leaflets expressed McIntyre's opposition to a proposed school tax. And even though she produced them herself, she signed them as, quote, a concerned parent and taxpayer. So McIntyre was fined $100 for violating part of the Ohio election code uh, that prohibited giving out campaign literature that didn't have your name and address on it. So this was a 7-2 to two decision this time by the Supreme Court, a higher margin, saying that this also violated the Constitution. Uh, what the court said was, quote, an author's decision to remain anonymous, like other decisions concerning omissions or additions to the content of a publication, is an aspect of the freedom of speech protected by the First Amendment. The particular um, protection, quote, extends beyond the literary realm to the advocacy of political causes, and, quote, when a law burdens core political speech, we apply exacting scrutiny and we uphold the restriction only if it is narrowly tailored to serve an overriding state interest. Now, those of you that remember our Law 140 on standards of review, the, what is exacting scrutiny and how does it differ from strict scrutiny? Don't ask me, I couldn't really tell you because they've swapped the word strict for exacting and they swapped compelling for overriding, but in substance, they're the same thing. So essentially, in that McIntyre case, that becomes the main precedent that says that you can't punish people for anonymous speech. So then this thing gets implemented by the lower courts. So a lot of the court decisions relating to anonymous speech uh, are implemented at the circuit court level, which covers multiple states, and then you have the district court level, which covers all or part of a given state. So at the circuit court level, this so we're doing this by level of decision-making and not by time, because the, the last case I'm going to give you occurred before this one that I'm about to give you. Uh, but there's actually a case out of the Ninth Circuit. It is in Ray Anonymous Online Speakers. It is from 2011, so it's a case out of Nevada. And it basically was a business dispute between Quickstar, which is basically the successor to Amway. So it's a multi-level marketing type company uh, and a group called Signature Management Team that basically went out of their way to attack Quickstar regularly uh, in anonymous postings and videos that were put on YouTube and everything else. Quickstar filed suit. And as part of the discovery process, when they're trying to get information, they tried to compel one of the uh, signature management team employees to disclose the identity of five separate speakers who had made comments that Quickstar decided was defamatory. The, uh, the guy from the other side said, no, I'm not going to do that. The district court looked into it and required them to disclose the identity of three of the five speakers, saying that essentially the comments were commercial speech focused on attacking Quickstar's business and not what we would consider core speech like political expression or whatever else, something that's not financially motivated. Uh, so both sides appealed because Quickstar wanted all five people identified, uh, signature management team wanted nobody identified, and the court ended up dismissing both appeals 
and they, as part of their decision, they go through a lot of the history of uh, free speech and anonymity, and they say, quote, online speech stands on the same footing as other speech. There is no basis for qualifying the level of First Amendment scrutiny that should be applied to online speech. As the Ninth Circuit has explained, quote, the ability to speak anonymously on the internet promotes the robust exchange of ideas and allows individuals to express themselves freely without fear of economic or official retaliation or concern about social ostracism. Uh, But the court went on to distinguish between the political speech and commercial speech like the district court did and basically agreed with the district court that it was fine to order signature management team to disclose three of those five speakers because this was um, economic speech, commercial speech entitled to slightly less protection than core advocacy type stuff that we think of when we think of free expression. So then the, the case at the district court level that I'm going to give you happened 10 years prior to this. So this is back in 2001 when the internet was still in its, its young stages. And it's John Doe versus tothemart.com. So this was a 2001 case out of Washington State. And it was essentially a shareholder derivative suit. So what those are uh, is essentially if you're a shareholder of a company and you think the management has been lying to people to manipulate the stock price, a shareholder derivative suit is where you file a lawsuit on behalf of the shareholders. So it's not something that's authorized by the board of the company. You're doing it in your capacity as a shareholder as a class action on behalf of all other shareholders. That's the gist of it. Uh, So they filed this suit alleging that there was fraud based on statements by the management team. And the company wanted to subpoena um, people who had been posting anonymously on an Internet message board as part of their defense to confirm that they weren't company officials. Um, And as part of this, the court articulated a four-part test when you're dealing with a subpoena for information for somebody that is not a party to the lawsuit, which essentially is what's happening with this Twitter context where someone tweeted a smiley face at these five anonymous accounts that the U.S. attorney now wants. Same type of deal back in 2001 where this company wants the identities of anonymous posters who aren't actually part of the litigation. And what the court did in this case is do a four-pronged test, what they're called factors. So each one kind of puts together a balancing test when you look at them all together. The first one is, was the subpoena issued in good faith? That's, that's prong one. Prong two is, is the claim or defense for which that information is being sought, is that core to the case? Is it a central piece of it? Prong three is the identity information of the anonymous user directly and materially related to the claim or defense? Is it directly and materially relevant? And then prong four, is there any other source from which the required information is available? So these are your four tests. Was the subpoena brought in good faith? Is the defense that you're needing it for core to the case? Is the anonymous information core to that claim or defense? And can you get it from somewhere else, in essence? Now, you might be wondering, why does this matter? This is a district court opinion It's not binding precedent on any other court. And the reason why it matters is that a lot of these cases present issues of what are called first impressions. So they don't happen often, but they happen enough that someone's got to consider it first. And if the opinion is done well, 
it becomes very persuasive to other courts that look at that same issue. So this Doe versus ToTheMart.com case has become one of these influential standards when you're dealing with trying to subpoena information from an anonymous party that's not part to what's going on. Uh, so looking at these four factors, you got to imagine that the government's not entitled to get this information because the factors don't really go in their favor. You know, was the subpoena brought in good faith? Let's assume for the sake of argument, yes. You know, I, I would dispute that's the case. I think it's just a lazy United States attorney, but there's a presumption that that's necessary. Is the claim or defense for which the information is sought core to the case? Is the identity of these five people who had a smiley face emoji tweeted at them core to this particular guy that the U.S. Attorney's Office is attempting to prosecute? No, it's a fucking smiley face emoji. It has no meaningful content at all whatsoever. Is the identity information of the anonymous user directly and materially relevant to that claim or defense? Also, no, because the fact it's a smiley face, the fact that it's going to an anonymous person or a named person doesn't make a lick of difference. If the smiley face has independent meaning, it would have that independent meaning regardless, but it doesn't, so the identity of the person receiving it doesn't matter. And is there any other source from which the information is available? Well, yeah. I mean, I'm telling you, Popat's got a website. He's a lawyer. He's got a law license. Keith Lee, he's a lawyer. He's got a law license. All that stuff is available. So under that four-factor test, the government would not be entitled to subpoena that information from Twitter. So, folks, that's going to wrap it up for this Law 140. That is the law on anonymous speech and the government trying to get your identity. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you did, please feel free to send us a tweet and let us know your thoughts or leave us a rating or review on iTunes. Uh, as always, thank you so much for listening. And on behalf of myself and Mike the Sound Guy, I hope you'll have a blessed week and I will talk to you next Monday. <laughs> <laughs>